Hello from Austin. Welcome to the live recording of episode 200 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday night, April 19th, 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. 200. <laughs> 200 episodes and over 100 people here live watching this. It's only because the Mets are off tonight. I mean, let's be real. That's true. Is, but is Francisco Lindor on the list? No, not yet, unless he's using a pseudonym. I, was, I mean, would Francisco Lindor really show up under his real name? I mean... <laughs> if it would break him out of his slump, it wouldn't be too bad. He's doing fine. You know what? Okay. Um, so anyway, um, hello, everybody, to the 100-plus people who are here live um, and to the folks who are listening to this later this week. Um, thank you guys so, so much for joining us. We are... Like, I think a little bit surprised that we made it to episode 200, but here we are. Um, Bobby, I was just looking at our list of, of early episodes. So episode one, What the World Needs Now is a new podcast, dropped January 25th, 2017. Oh, those bygone days of innocence. <laughs> I mean, just, just to show like how, how naive we were about the podcast, right? One of the early episodes um, is January 2019 as the over-under date for the 9-11 trial. January 2019, like. Wait, what? <laughs> whoops. <laughs> well, I, I I would be upset about us not predicting well, except I'm confident we both went for the over. Oh, so we both totally took the over, so. And actually, um, I, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's been more than a few times. Um, uh, I mean, I think just, we always take the over. And indeed, there will be more 9-11 trial news in this episode. As always, because it's a sustaining member. Um, it is a standard member. So do you want to give folks a little bit of a run of show? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Okay, so we have uh, really a few different parts. There's the weekly rundown, which is the usual meat of the show. This week, the weekly rundown is going to cover the usual post 9-11 beat. And that's going to include legal of the announced withdrawal of all U.S. armed forces from Afghanistan. And of course, we are going to check in with true sustaining member Guantanamo Bay. We have some military commission and other related matters that we can discuss. Then switching over to our, our cyber beat, we'll talk about the Russia sanctions that dropped this past week. In particular, we'll focus on the ones that were premised, at least in part, and somewhat intriguingly, on uh, solar winds. And then we'll talk about something else that has to do with the other really big mass breach that, uh, that occurred over the past several months, and something the FBI did that was really interesting uh, to deal with the aftermath of it, that it raises interesting questions about just what is it you can accomplish from a cybersecurity perspective using search warrants, or maybe we should say search and seizure warrants. Which I was going to say more, more seizure than search, I think. More, se more seizing. We know it's there. We just got to seize it or delete it. Uh, <laughs> then we'll, we'll pivot to the Biden beat uh, to the extent we haven't already covered it with that other stuff. And we'll just take stock at the 100 day mark for the administration. It's not actually, Steve, is it 100 days exactly, or are we just close to that? I think we're just close. I think it's next week. All right. And so that's, that's February just always messes up the math. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. The math's hard. Um, should have a metric system for the months or the weeks. I guess the French tried that with the revolution, right? That didn't work out well. Uh, part two, we'll get to it worked out fine for Napoleon. <laughs> There's a lesson there. Uh, <laughs> question time. We've got a handful of questions we got in advance, and then we are really excited to get some live Q&A going. There's already some uh, questions dropping into the Q&A function. Again, with Zoom webinar format, if you're not used to it, um, 
there's both a chat function and a Q&A function. Um, put the questions uh, in the Q&A function, please. That's where we'll look for the questions. And then just have a conversation. Give us the Mystery Science Theater Theater 3000 treatment. Uh -oh. um, live, live annotation of the podcast in the chat box. Troll us, troll each other. Actually, be <laughs> kind to one another. Be kind to us. Um, but enjoy. Hey, the I'm wearing my podcast shirt, okay? Oh, yeah, look at that. Okay, so uh, wait, let's see the back of that sucker. I'm not turning, I'm not getting up and turning. Around. Around? Okay, well, I don't even know if there is anything on the back of that. No, that's the one that says. This is the one with the, one with the, with the uh, zero qualifications for anything else. Yep, exactly. By the way, uh, David Williams, very apt observation about the comparative bookshelf action. Although if we were doing our offices, Steve would have a much stronger. I was going to say, this is a little bit unfair because like my office setup, I think I, I've got, I've got, I, I actually have been officially room rated on Room Raider for my office and That's did pretty you're well. On TV, man. I'm, I'm never on, no one wants me on TV. I never get the chance. Um, ooh, there's already a, a pretty, a pretty harsh personal question in the Q&A that I'm going to have some, I'm going to have some struggles with. Oh my God, this is going to be rich. All right. and, and by the way, if you're wondering, like, is this going to be another hour and seven minute show? I think we're going to go on until we've sort of exhausted everybody. So really? Uh, yeah. Well, oh. maybe newsflash. He's <laughs> yeah. like, wait, I've got little kids. I was supposed to put them to bed. Um, we'll see what else. Uh, so we will do question time and then we'll have, of course, frivolity. Um, I'm sure we'll have things to say about the Mets. I'm sure we will have no, things. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The first place. The New first York place, Mets. New York Mets. You, you, you can't call them. You, you, we need the full title, please. We know. We need to use it while we can. Yep. And uh, perhaps it'll be a long run. Maybe not. Um, we'll talk about things that we had in mind when we started this podcast. And we'll project forward to episode, what, uh, 400, <laughs> 4,000. <laughs> 4,000? Maybe maybe it'll be busy enough to get us there quicker. Ooh, um, ooh the Arnie Vinick press conference till you drop strategy. Nice West Wing reference. Right. Uh, we also <laughs> we also have some T-shirts to give away as a special uh, treat tonight. Um, we haven't really planned like what the prompt would be to give away the T-shirts, but we still have both the as modeled by Steve uh, dark gray T-shirt, which uh, is is a great shirt, and then we also have the quasi burnt orange, not actually burnt orange. It's kind of more of a squashy pumpkin thing, but but I like it. It's the more traditional. It's got the logo, I think, on the pocket. So um, we'll we'll hand out a few of those as well. We'll figure out how to do that. We'll come up with some completely unfair, arbitrary system for handing out T-shirts. Absolutely. But this is also a really good chance to to say a major thank you to Carolyn Dockery um, from the Strauss Center, who is. Um, really, the the force behind the throne. Um, I, I don't even know whose throne. But Does that make her like Varys? Yeah, Varys. Yeah, Varys. No, like, no, that's really that's not fair to Carolyn. No, it's not. We always uh, we always have reference at the top of the show to the fact that the Strauss Center, the the Robert S. Strauss Center for International Security and Law, is is the sponsoring institution. I'm the director. Steve's one of the key people. Um, what makes the Strauss Center tick is the incredible team that works there. And uh, I, I'm just every day so thankful to work with those folks. And, and, and Carolyn really is the, the one who keeps the trains moving above all. So. I have to say, that might be an early contender for episode title. You're definitely not Varys. You're definitely not. Okay, writing it down. Um, all right, so why don't we, as opposed to just sort of, you know, sitting here and chatting for an hour and a half, why don't we actually try to run through some of these topics? Let's do it. All right. Um, let's start with our post 9-11 beat. We're going to talk about the uh, the big announcement from the president that by the time we hit the 20th anniversary of 9-11 this fall, all U.S. armed forces, and they've since underscored, they mean all, including otherwise unemphasized or unannounced 
uh, special operators, all U.S. forces out of Afghanistan. I assume there's an embassy exception. Um, so, Steve, assuming we follow through, what are the legal implications of this? So I think the legal implications are um, shrug emoji, um, right, that we're going to have to fight one more time over the question of whether the AUMF continues to provide the basis for the long-term military detention of the, you know, however many of the 40 remaining Guantanamo detainees are not in the military commission system. Um, you know, as, as you know, as, as, as close listeners of the pod will remember, the DC circuit last tackled this question in Al-Alwi, um, I think, what, two, two and a half years ago? Um, and at least there, the court appeal said, look, there's still troops on the ground, there are still hostilities in Afghanistan. The court did not say that if there weren't, the AUMF analysis would be different. But I also think, Bobby, that one could easily suggest that Al-Alwi did not settle that question. And so I think it would have to be litigated anew, which just what we need in the Guantanamo cases, more questions of first impression. Yeah, we definitely are heading towards in here. I'm going to drop something into the, the chat here. Ooh, look at you with your copy and paste. Yes. So in I had a 2012 article, mainly written in 2011. Ooh, post-war. Beyond, I know, earlier than that. Oh. Beyond the battlefield, beyond Al-Qaeda. That one. This was sort of early Obama administration, a sort of a sense that everything was sort of locked into an equilibrium. And I argued that, <laughs> that's, that's right, Janine, there is homework. I expect everyone to read this. Um, there is uh, an argument back a decade ago about how everything seems like it's kind of locked into an equilibrium. And, and the piece was all about how so much of the seeming litigation equilibrium is driven by the idea that, that, that it's settled that there's a state of armed conflict, but that's totally an artifact of the fact that all the Guantanamo detainees, almost without exception, though there were a few, um, at some point in their fact pattern or their alleged fact pattern could be traced back to the Afghanistan battlefield. And everyone agreed that there was a state of armed conflict there, that the US was still a party to it and that, that it was going on. And so the piece basically said like, look, that fact one day will change. Of course, I, I, even I didn't think 10 years would have to go by before that fact changed, but one day the United States would not be participating in conventional boots on the ground armed conflict there. So now it looks like we're going to get close to that day. And so I stand by my earlier prediction that when that happens, new wave of detainee litigation forcing a much harder question. And it draws attention to the, the issue that was always the internationally uh, controversial aspect of the Bush administration's policy and what became then the Obama administration's policy and the, the Trump administration's policy. And at least for the moment, it's the Biden administration's policy. And that is that there's a state of armed conflict between the United States and Al-Qaeda that's not strictly defined by the fact that in Afghanistan, you have that armed conflict. So I think that what you end up with is a situation where it will become pretty untenable to claim there's a state of armed conflict with the Afghan Taliban, but it will leave on the plate because I'm sure the administration will still continue to maintain it's got armed conflict, broadly speaking, with the Islamic State, core Al-Qaeda, and at least certain uh, affiliated or associated forces. And, and then that will become the basis for, for renewed rounds of habeas litigation. And there's actually not on point precedent from the Supreme Court that addresses this. Nope. The Hamdi ruling from 2004 is very Afghanistan specific. True. What do you think that'll happen? What do you think will happen? This Supreme Court? I don't know if it gets to the Supreme Court because you can't have a circuit split. I mean, I, I think a lot depends upon where we are when the case gets up. 
you know, are we still at 40 detainees with no movement? Are, um, is it five years from now and we're down to like 14 detainees because we finally, you know, come up with a sort of hold your nose solution for the military commissions? I mean, I think the content is really going to matter here. But I think the most important point is the current law of the DC circuit, I think, does not squarely resolve this question. Yeah, I think that's right. So that's kind of- Oh, we agree. Drink. <laughs> All right. Wait. Wait, is it better to drink when we drink? agree or when we disagree? You have a drink, you need a drink. I'm, I'm enjoying a Lagunitas IPA tonight. There you go. What have you got? I'm enjoying something that apparently is a more scarce commodity than one would think, Austin tap water. Do you, do you have a uh, tap water issue at your house? No, but, you know, we just went through a whole, like, ah, you know, yes. 10 days uh, without tap water I'll thing. that out. Uh, let's see. What else do you want to say about this? Another thing, so we've been focused on the detention implications it's useful and apropos of your earlier reference to my post-war paper to also emphasize that the implications of the end of combat operations and combat presence in Afghanistan certainly doesn't mean the end of the use of uh, airstrikes. And I think the administration, at least when officials have been speaking to journalists writing follow-on stories, the, the whole tenor of those stories has been, so where will the over-the-horizon airstrikes come from? Are they coming out of out of UAE? Are we going to base forces and project out of there? Are we going to go back to sort of a 1990s uh, SLBMs from the Indian Ocean? Um, but the common thread is, well, of course, occasionally we're still going to be using airstrikes, which tells me, A, that uh, whatever battles went on within the administration about pulling forces out, at least wasn't understood by everyone involved in those battles as being a, all right, armed conflict over even in Afghanistan. It's forces out, now we're gonna do over the horizon and, and ultralight footprint, much as we do in other theaters, especially in Africa and, uh, and in uh, Yemen, or at least until recently in Yemen. So I think that's the world we're moving into where Afghanistan's being, I don't normalize it in the right word, but it's being uh, leveled out with what used to be go on in the Fatah region of Pakistan, does go on, or at least until recently was going on in Yemen, definitely still goes on all the time in Somalia. And, and, it, and it's kind of funny, but um, I think the center of gravity actually really does at this point fully shift into Africa, right? Uh, even though that's not where necessarily the Al-Qaeda or Islamic State center of gravity is, but that's where the US presence will be maybe heaviest. So this leads to the last thing I wanna say, cause we really should, I think, move on. But the last thing I wanna say is um, if we really are, right, going to actually you know, reduce our footprint in Afghanistan to such a great degree and pivot toward those other parts of the world. One might think it would be a good time, Bobby, for some AUMF reform. Hey, you know, it seems apropos. I don't think the administration wants to spend any capital on it. But I well, I, so, can... so uh, a recurring theme of this episode is going to be things the Biden administration does not want to spend capital on. But, you <laughs> yeah. know, hey, Congress, what do you think? Well, so we're talking about all this, this uh, impact on the AUMF. And we've talked a little bit detention already. What about what's going on in Guantanamo? What's what's happening with the main thing that actually changes yet doesn't change the, the commissions? Yeah. So um, uh, uh, we have we have um, there's actually a fair amount of news from Guantanamo, and I actually had I got an update today from one of our friends in the commission. So who will remain anonymous, but who I'm pretty sure is watching. So thank you. Um, all right. So with the 9/11 case, it was continued yet again um, with deadlines suspended and pushed back. Yet again, but Judge Watkins, who let's all remember kids, is not the actual judge, is just sort of a, a placeholder until they appoint, I think the ninth, the eighth or ninth judge, maybe, 
um, to preside over the case. Um, apparently he says this is the last automatic continuance um, and that there's actually gonna be like real filing deadlines coming down the pike pretty soon. Um, hmm. But there's also still no news on who's gonna actually replace Judge Watkins. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, and I think if, if, if the math is right, I think there's a 9-11 hearing scheduled for the week of September 1st. Um, remember that date, kids, because that's going to come back in a minute. All right. Um, second, Carol Rosenberg, who is just, I mean, in, you know, incomparable, and, and I don't know what we do without her, reported today that uh, many of the detainees were at least offered vaccinations today. I don't know if they actually received them. This is obviously further to a couple of weeks or months ago. I've lost track of time. The, the big old, you know, uh, uh, outrageous reaction to the fact that we might actually vaccinate detainees. Um, well, we're going to do it anyway. Um, so the government, let's see, da, 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 um, update in the Malaysia case, right? So this is the brand new case. Um, the, the, there was an order setting the arraignment, the arraignment, there's still been no arraignment, um, right? For uh, August 31st, which of course is gonna be kind of complicated if there's a 9-11 hearing on September 1st, you can't really have eight defense teams at Guantanamo at one time, oops. Uh, so, you know, I guess what, four and a half months from now, the case, the, the brand new case that was announced in January will finally have an arraignment because, you know, eight months, seven and a half months between announcing charges and arraigning the de defendants, that's totally normal. Um, and then, of course, there are still some pretty big um, uh, motions pending in the 9-11 case, including uh, unlawful influence, including the inappropriate dismissal of Judge McCall. I mean, <laughs> suffice it to say, the commissions are the gift that keeps on giving to us. Like, where would this podcast be without the military Missions. And yet they're stuck in the mud and they're just, I don't think they're any less stuck in the mud today than they have been at any point in the last, I don't know, a couple weeks, months, years, decades. Yeah, they're not going to self-resolve in a way that sort of takes the issue out of the Biden administration's hands. No. They're just going to keep turning on like this kind of, it, it constantly, you know, reducing by half the distance between where we are now and actually getting to the trials, the, these big trials, and, and thus never actually completing that closure. And so if, unless they're content to sort of complete their time, rather as the Obama administration did, like with this stuff percolating along, tutting it, trying to distance themselves from it, not really owning it, but nonetheless, it goes on under their watch. Unless, unless they want to change from that, that's, that's probably how it's going to go. And see supra expending capital, which they're not going to do on the military commissions. Bingo, bingo. Um, Okay, so I, I, I spy a recurring theme to this episode. Yeah. Now, this next one, I guess you could say, I don't know if this counts as expending capital, but this, so I keep laughing because I'm glancing at the chat. You guys are saying some funny stuff there. Um, I can't call it all out because it's otherwise we won't finish the run of show. Um, so, one place they did decide to take an action where it's interesting because here the theme is more. I'm not saying they shouldn't have done this. I'm definitely not saying that, but I'm saying the fact that they did do what we're about to talk about raises interesting questions as to what's, what's the explanation exactly, the sort of the deeper position that the US government is taking by uh, doing what they did. And here I'm talking about the sanctions against Russia, not in general, because in general, they darn well deserved it, but as to solar winds in particular. Um, so last week, the administration announced to much attention and fanfare, uh, fresh additional round of sanctions and diplomatic expulsions against Russia and various Russian entities and organizations and individuals. One batch of the sanctions was specifically targeting a group of six Russian tech companies 
These are these are entities that by, have contractual relations to support Russia's big uh, intelligence agencies, uh, FSB, SVR, and GRU. Uh, G, and, and I'm going to emphasize here, GRU is the military intelligence enterprise, and it is the one associated with the really destructive cyber operations, especially stuff directed at Ukraine, but not just that. Um, so here we're thinking, talking about like NotPetya, stuff like that. SVR is the one that on the same day the U.S. government finally like really loudly and formally attributed the SolarWinds Orion operation campaign to. So the question this raises, uh, there, there was also something about uh, sanctions so you can't deal with Russian sovereign debt. So if you were planning to do some sovereign debt investing, uh, back off from that. So why is this a big deal? Well, it's interesting because it of course, we want to defend against and defeat SVR's cyber exploitation activities, obviously. Um, to, to sanction entities and to use this as a vehicle for state practice to announce that there's something wrongful, not just adversarial and unwelcome, but, but actually norm violative, raises the question, okay, well, what norm's been violated here? What, what line in the sand are we drawing here? Um, because I'm not saying that it's necessarily a claim that international law was violated, but there was clearly at least a claim that something wrongful and norm violative occurred. And so if you parse uh, the, the fact sheet the White House put out, if you parse the order itself, if you parse the sanctions document from the Treasury Department and the statement they put out, and then if you also account for things that were said by you know, unnamed officials talking uh, you know, on background, uh, which then were circulated. Um, what you see are a series of factors that were emphasized all in an effort to show why the U.S. government obviously is not saying that espionage is a violation of norms. We, we spend a lot of money trying to be really good at this ourselves, nor were they saying that the cyber domain is somehow an off-limits zone for espionage. Again, we spend a lot of money trying to be great at that and we're perhaps the best. Um, the idea is that this particular operation in some sense or perhaps some combination of sense crossed a line. And we knew this was probably coming. So many of us have been speculating how the government might draw that line. So here are the variables they mentioned. There's a lot of emphasis on the sheer number of entities and especially private sector entities that were penetrated as a result of this one operation. Um, and you know, in case people don't know what we're talking about, this is the one where people and entities, both in government and the private sector, who used the SolarWinds product called Orion, which is a network awareness and management tool that uh, had an automatic trusted vendor software update mechanism, not unlike all our phones do, right? Um, the Russians, the, the SVR somehow got into uh, the, the SolarWinds build environment in which updates for the Orion product, which is out there on the systems of all of these customers, they got in there so that eventually when an update went out, it carried with it uh, uh, some malware. And that was the basis for SVR then to drop in on all these, not all of them, actually, there were like some 16,000 entities compromised and a very specific subset of them and a relatively small subset were then exploited actively by the Russians. So uh, there's an emphasis on just the sheer number of entities that got hit with the malware. Uh, that almost surely is not enough to be the norm in and of itself, but it's a factor that was cited. Uh, there's the scale of the burden on all those private sector companies to spend the money to remediate uh, and to, to mitigate the harm. Um, is that really enough on its own? That got a lot of play. Um, 
there's the fact that the attack vector happened to run through trusted software updates. Now here it gets interesting because you can make a pretty decent policy argument that that, ought to, that that maybe should be off limits no matter how efficacious it is as an espionage technique because if everyone starts being afraid to do updates, then we have vast spillover society-wide global uh, security problems if people won't do updates anymore. There's something to that. Um, but I think the real action here is the identity of the perpetrator. It's because it was the Russians writ large. And here, the distinction between SVR, which does not have the destructive track record, and GRU, which does, it's kind of wiped aside because those are both the Russian government when you go up the level. And Russia's history of using access to cause destruction, not just espionage, combined with, and I think this is critical, and it was emphasized very loudly in all these documents from the US government, combined with the fact that there's also the assassinations and all this other outrageous behavior, just a, a slew, a stew, a slew and a stew of norm violating behavior by the Russian government. All these things taken together in some sense were said to cross the line. And um, does, does that turn into a new test or new norm that the United States will then map on to other entities? Um, I don't think so. I think this was very specifically um, a cumulative line crossing impact by the Russians and isn't really gonna turn into some new notion of where the cyber lines are drawn uh, writ large for us and for others, including the Chinese. I mean, you don't see anything similar happening for the Microsoft Exchange uh, uh, breach, which was exploited on a similarly massive scale, similarly went to uh, a key piece of software infrastructure. And that brings us to our next topic on the cyber beat. And this brings us to something really interesting the FBI did. All right, so Microsoft Exchange, which many of us use, not all instances were exploited. If it was cloud-based, then no problem. But many entities have what's called an on-prem or on-premises version where you're sort of running the server yourself. And that software had was subject to various zero-day vulnerabilities. Uh, the, the China affiliated or associated advanced persistent threat group, known by labeled by Microsoft as Hafnium, uh, somehow figured this out, took massive advantage of it, and got onto thousands upon thousands upon thousands of systems. And the, the scale of, of breach and, and penetration was really brought here as well. So this is all known and once the word got out to, to victims about what they should be looking for and how to how to remove the uh, the key thing that then happened was that the Hafnium would drop shells, web shells, uh, so that they could have a sustained ability to exploit those systems. The shells are on all these systems. And uh, the number of entities that were capable of hearing this and fixing their own problems once they were tipped off about it was probably less than half of the victims. And it was possible for FBI to identify who the others were, unrealistic to think you were gonna actually be able to work one by one with them all to let them know what's going on, provide support they needed to actually clean up their own act. And it was possible to just do it non-consensually. So they got a warrant that authorized them to, to seize, to search and seize the web shells which in practical terms here meant making a, a precise copy and then deleting off the victim's uh, systems. And so with one Rule 41 uh, 6B6 seizure warrant, FBI went out and non-consensually cleaned up everybody else's computers, or at least as many as they could. Um, Steve, does this give you heartburn? Because 
I thought it was great, frankly. So I, I guess the short version is what they actually did does not give me heartburn. I, I can imagine how this could go awry in ways that would, right? Like the, I mean, I think, I think a lot, first of all, I think a lot of folks would be surprised to learn that this is something that the government can do without, you know, necessarily telling us. And I think, you know, this was a very benign and beneficent use of said authority, but I can imagine more malicious ones. Yeah, so there's an interesting question then. So that raises a classic national security law systems design question. So what do we think, what's the safeguard? And the safeguard here is not just the FBI's druthers, it's you've got to go tell the federal judge to whom you're applying for the warrant, what you're doing now in this case, they had done some pretty substantial testing of the uh, operational technique they would then use to document under lab conditions that there would not be spillover harms. So that was part of the analysis that they put forward to the judge and the judge ultimately was persuaded. And it does appear they were right and they pulled it off just as they said they would. Um, so the question we should all ask is, right, is that good enough? Is there any reason to think that the, the warrant context and the, the role of a federal judge it's not the right one. Or, or maybe someone would say, like, I'm actually fine with this, but I think we should empower uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. We should empower them to be sort of the lead agent for these sorts of uh, warrant-based cleanup operations. And maybe we should design that all from scratch to fully empower that to be done, not just through the lens of law enforcement mechanisms, where, by the way, the framing was not, we're gathering, well, they, they said they're gathering evidence, but it's also instrumentalities of crime, which is exactly, I think, a, this is a digital instrumentality of crime. Um, I could see an argument for involving sort of CISA in some fashion, I suppose. All right, uh, I think that covers the cyber beat. I think uh, so. the, we've, we've been on the Biden beat by implication, but let's go there explicitly, Steve. 100 days is always a benchmark for new administrations. Skeptics say that if you don't get stuff done within that window, you're probably not going to get it done. Um, from a national security law perspective, uh, what, what grades do you give out? What should have been done? What should not have been done? That sort of thing. So, I mean, I guess here's the problem, right? Um, the, the question is like how... <laughs> I don't want to sort of put this out there as like in a world of infinite capital, this is what should have happened because we need to be realistic, right? About sort of how how much political capital needs to be spent, um, et cetera. Um, it's quite clear to me that the Biden administration um, is focused on domestic policy and social domestic social policy to be specific on the economy, on stimulus checks, on vaccinations, right? That like all of the energy is going into those topics. Um, and what's missing from all of this, and I don't blame the administration for this, is any structural reform conversations, like lots of quiet step backs from the Trump administration, lots of rescissions of policies that you know, are not surprising, um, right? Um, lots of, you know, I think, restorations of norms through either you know, formal memoranda or just by who you're putting in the relevant offices and the relevant positions. So all of that's good. The question is how much of this will survive the election of a Republican, um, right? Like uh, how much of this survives if he's no longer in office? And, and you know, there's, I, I think the last thing I saw was that like now they're talking about infrastructure, um, right? I think, who was it um, John Cornyn, right? Quoted this Politico article about how, you know, he never tweets, right? You know, he's never, you know, all these things he's not doing. I'm like, yeah, cause he's actually like governing. Um, and, and, you know, 
I like most of the governing he's doing. No one's having the conversation about like, how should we fix the things that Trump broke? Or how should we fix the things that were that that are clearly broken as evidenced by ways that Trump took advantage of them? Right. No one's talking about reforming the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. No one's really talking about like speeding up congressional of subpoenas. Like, you know, all of this stuff. Just there's so many um, structural reforms probably that you and I have talked about um, that are just nowhere in the conversation. Now, I don't, again, I don't blame the Biden administration for this because they only have so much time. And I understand why their messaging is very focused on the the, the flashy big picture domestic policy stuff, the vaccinations, et cetera. But what about Congress, right? I mean, it's, you know, I understand that like the, 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 the majority in the Senate is razor thin. That hasn't stopped them from floating things that are never gonna get through the Senate anyway. And so, you know, where are the conversations about you know, from Congress about like reigning in the executive branch, about, you know, sort of re reclaiming some of the congressional powers that the last four, eight, 12, 16, 24 years have shown have eroded to the executive branch. And I just, you know, I really just don't, I, I'm worried that like that window is already closing and no one, no one on the Hill is like, you know, out in front of this stuff. I think that's right. That there was, uh, in sort of, uh, punditry circles and law professor circles, just a widespread assumption that within the hundred days, you would certainly see some sort of uh, statutory intervention because there were many projects to describe the sorts of interventions that might be helpful from a norm reinforcement or norm defense perspective on the rule of law. I think a lot of us assume there would be some of that activity, but actually it turns out there's there's not. There's really nothing happening in that respect. There's just a, there's a rest restoration of normalcy in, in some in some respects, as you point out. And people, if they didn't want to act on that before, are not going to act on it later as the as the memory of you know what things were like with Donald Trump gets a little bit more distance. The only way that might change, of course, would be if you start getting close towards the end of the first term. Let's say in the primaries, Donald Trump comes back and he's coming back to office and it's uh it's still the case that the Democrats have both houses. But, that, but, that, the, but that's the exact in, moment. In that case, in that case, then I think you'll see some belated attempts to say, okay, wait a minute, we, we really want to focus on this now. Um, but in the meantime, there's nothing on the horizon that suggests this is about to become an issue. I think you're right about that. Well, but also that's, I mean, that's the exact moment when the Republican, when any chance of getting any Republicans to join in these reforms goes out the window. Like now is the time, you know, now is the time for a, a handful of Democratic senators to reach across the aisle and say, guys, we're willing to run the executive branch while our guy's in office, mm -hmm. right? You know, Mike Lee, right, proposed legislation to reform, um, you know, the National Emergencies Act, even when Trump was in office. So I just, you know, I just, I, there are no one no one has a silver bullet here what is frustrating to me is that no one's even talking about it and so you know for all of the robust reform proposals that like some of us spent months working on they're all just like they're all now you know no never mind because you know everyone's focused elsewhere and that's i think that is completely understandable in the short term and completely myopic in the long term I think it just goes to show you how we, it's, it's very consistent with how we ended up here to begin with, which is that the deep structural incentives for the median members in both the House and the Senate really don't go towards interbranch battles, the Madisonian model, 
Uh, it's the separation of parties, not powers. And there's little from a political science perspective, there's little to suggest it would be broadly in the interest of legislators to spend capital on, on these issues. These aren't, these aren't vote maximizing issues for most of them. The ones for whom that would be um, don't really know why they're not making a bigger stink. But this, but this goes back. I mean, like there ought to be some things that are more important. I mean, like you know, no reform's going to happen, right? Um, no reform that isn't just one party taking advantage of majority rule is going to happen unless people are willing to spend capital that you know might be that for their own political sakes might be better spent on flashier things. Yeah. And there's probably a lot of low hanging fruit that could easily be passed, but just doing the easily agreed upon, you know, relatively minor, obvious stuff. Well, this, and, so and, easy for people to say like that. Look, and if, as long as Donald Trump never returns, you'll never have to worry about that sort of aberrant behavior again. And it's like, well, that, you know, he was there once. First of all, he might come back and, and someone else who has a similarly dismissive attitude towards norms might come back. But again, um, the the space between those who'd like to move forward just with the low hanging fruit that you could definitely get agreement on and those who, if you're going to go forward at all, want to go for more meaningful, bigger chunks of reform, where now that it's not so clear there's a majority, that goes along with to explain it. Um, now, of course, we're talking about like the rule of law topics and the uh, the norm enforcement topics that that are what I think of as sort of the the Trump era national security law podcast topics. When we think about conventional national security law topics, um, are there places where you thought there might be either executive action or uh, statutory action that we're not seeing that you actually really thought probably would occur? Vacancies. Like, I mean, vacancies, national emergencies. I mean, just, you know, any like things where even Republicans were pissed off by the end of the Trump administration. Well, I guess right? I, I'm, I'm kind of lumping all that into things that like you and I didn't expect to be talking about on this show. Those are like the Trump era topics. But are there any bread and butter classic national security I mean, issues? FISA? Like, I mean, how about the three provisions of FISA that the Republicans let expire, you know, last March and still no, it was not just the Republicans. There's people on both sides were not happy about that. But I agree that there are three sunsetted provisions that really sooner or later do need legislative attention and nobody seems to, have, to be interested in pushing that renewal. There's also now, I mean, there, I, I think um, someone, uh, uh, Rai just put this in the, in the chat and I totally agree with this. Like there's also this mindset now, like, oh, we'll just throw it into the NDAA. The only bill passes. <laughs> the only train leaves the station. Yeah, seriously. Um, so, I, you know, it's not to say that I'm like, I, this is not disappointment in the Biden administration. I mean, this is a fairly unique governing moment, given the nature of our political divisions, given the 50-50 Senate, given, you know, everything else that's going on, given the fairly narrow majority that the Democrats have in the House. So I, I don't put all or even most of the blame for this on the Biden administration. I, you know, frankly, I blame congressional Democrats um, who, you know, I think I, I have always thought were more likely to sort of rein in their own than the Republicans were, but have not taken advantage of the moment, at least thus far in this Congress. And I think it's a lost, it's a missed opportunity. It's increasingly gonna be a lost one. It's a domestic policy or bust for the most part, understandably, but uh, as, as every president learns, uh, the external world has an interest, those in wild cards, there will be something. Um, let's hope it's not something further on the pandemic and let's hope it's not a dramatic turn towards kinetic confrontation with uh, between us and China. 
Um, but, you know, one way or the other, there's going to be something in, in the Biden administration will be forced to pull towards foreign policy more than it has been currently. Um, all right. I think that I guess that's it for the Biden beat. Uh, should we pivot to these awesome questions we've got? Do you have a few you already know you want to engage on? I thought we might have to start going in order. Um, right. right. And, yeah. um, and, and just sort of um, we also got a couple of our emails. So do you want to do you want me to, to tackle the I'll, I'll read out the ones that are on the Q&A queue and you can take the ones from the emails. That sounds good. So um, the, we'll, I'll just kind of grab a handful. There's a bunch. We, we can't do them all, but I'll try to be quicker. So taking some of the ones that are email, emailed in advance, um, there was an interesting question, and we, we'll be like kind of lightning roundish about this. Um, a question about the scope of national security law, like what doesn't fall under that heading? And I, and I saw there was some, there was a report somebody did today that was kind of talking about this, about the new topics of national security law versus the old topics. We were kind of talking about that a moment ago. Um, from climate change to pandemics, there are there are things that are not directly, you know, they're not classic core topics like military invasion or or surveillance and espionage type issues. Um, do you see anything new, Steve, becoming a core topic of national security law in the years ahead? Are we sort of already have we already crossed that Rubicon where it's broadened a bit and we have a new equilibrium? I, I think the one thing that we're going to start spending a lot more time talking about in national security law classes is climate change. Um, you know, I, I think we're already probably going to have a lot more public health discussion than we did before. But, you know, at least our national security law casebook already had a public health unit before COVID. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think climate change is going to increasingly be a national security issue from both a policy and law perspective, where, you know, there are going to be serious threats posed by changing environmental conditions that are going to have both strategic and tactical implications for how we think about, you know, the sort of the structure of the military, you know, what, what we're oriented toward, how much we're investing in disaster management. I mean, all of those things. You know, from, a, from the point of view of teaching both to policy students and to legal students, this topic makes me think about the seam between those zones, which is very fuzzy and, and rightly blurred in many instances, um, but also conceptually distinct in some ways. And climate change unquestionably looms as a, a vast uh, global security problem and for every country, a national security problem at some level as things progress. Um, and it doesn't follow to me at least that there's specifically a national security legal domain that's implicated by that currently. Where I think that could change would be if and when this president or any future president follows the Trump model of aggressively using IEPA and the National Emergencies Act in order to unlock access to discretionary funds or relatively discretionary funds and to take certain other actions. I mean, maybe even sanctions on the basis of declaring a climate change national emergency and then starting to do things unilaterally um, using the model that Donald Trump has set forth. Um, I don't see any hint that Biden administration's on the verge of doing that. Although during the campaign, people who were against the, the Biden campaign were, were saying, oh, it's gonna do that. Um, but sooner or later, as conditions worsen and as uh, instability perhaps increases, or maybe just the politics of the issue change, sooner or later, somebody's gonna start talking seriously about that. And at that point, like all uses of the National Emergencies Act and IEPA, then it becomes a, a, a definite national security legal issue. So that, that was your lightning round version of, of your answer. <laughs> but by my standards, that was pretty lightning. <laughs> um, 
Let's see here. Uh, what about future deep dives? Uh, Donald asks if we've got any future deep dives planned. So How I about I've always wanted to do one on, on classification and declassification. And I think, I think if I, if I remember in the, in the Q and a window somewhere down there, Seth was, was pining for such a thing. And I agree. Um, I think it's long overdue. All right. Here's a good question. Philip asked, uh, you know, for those who are in research programs, getting degree programs and looking to do serious research, are there areas of national security law that are under researched that have been neglected? Um, especially at the scale of maybe a dissertation. Any ideas? I mean, I think the answer is is yes, but mostly because of to tie sort of threads together classification, right? That 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 there are areas that are under research because so much of the relevant material is is classified. Um, you know, I think it would be it would be interesting. I, the it would be interesting to sort of come up with a project that sort of borders on sensitive information that is either being declassified or that you can try to obtain through FOIA, right? Because I think that's where there's gonna be, you know, a lot of a lot of rich as yet unmined stuff. I also think there's a lot of interesting historical work to be done. I mean, the, you know, the sort of, the, I, I think from a, at least from a law perspective, the history of national security law and policy is not well traversed. Um, you know, m most of the papers are like, hey, here are the interesting 19th century cases from the Supreme Court. And that's not even like one 1,000th of the story. Yeah, 100% on that. So histories, there's a lot of uh, background on these cases to be put into context. Um, I also think, especially, you know, I, I think that question may have come from someone, if, let me scan back. Um, I, if you're in the UK and you're thinking about, you're obviously interested somewhat in the American experience, you're naturally positioned to do some interesting comparative work. There's, a, there's always a little bit of US-UK comparative work. I mean, I've got a paper about to come out that's literally that about uh, comparative cybersecurity policy frameworks. Uh, so I get that and that's great. Expanding that bubble and bringing in other countries into the comparative mix and doing serious, serious, rigorous organizational and legal combined analysis informed by sociocultural context and history of how each entity, for example, handles uh, domestic surveillance, how they handle international surveillance how they handle uh, the equivalent of parliamentary or congressional control, such as it is, over deployment of use of force. I mean, pick the classic issue and then do comparative case studies. And of course, the answer always turns out to be, well, you know, each culture is different. It's the product of its history and, and its own current politics. Great, but there's still a lot of commonalities and a lot of lessons learned. It's the closest we can get to controlled experiments. When you look at legally comparable uh, societies that share at least some amount of, of comparative foundation. So I recommend that. Uh, let's, I'll, I'll grab a few more from what we were mailed in advance, but do you wanna go ahead and throw out some of the stuff from the Q&A now? Sure, um, so the first question in the Q&A is from John Mitchell, um, not the former attorney general. Um, uh, Trump appears interested in a 2024 run. Will our national security systems provide voters a clear answer pre-election if Trump was, or especially still is compromised with Russia? Are there any national security laws or policies that apply? Sure, it seems like a failure to clarify this pre-election could become a major failure. Um, let me just say, if Trump, if Trump emerges as the Republican nominee in 2024, there are failures far more significant and far more systemic than just the inability of our you know, intelligence apparatus to fully connect Trump to whatever his various connections are. Um, but I don't know, I'm, I'm so mortified at the prospect, I'm not even sure I can give a straight answer. 
<laughs> this is a, it's creating too much uh, cognitive friction and dissonance for you to be able to engage on that. Um, I, I think that there's no such thing in our future as a sort of a, a settled, societally accepted set of answers on any questions on any topics relating to Donald Trump. So I don't think our existing uh, structures, policies, and, and legal frameworks are going to yield uh, insights into into Donald Trump's connections with with any number of foreign governments and enterprises. Um, I think a lot of us thought there'd be a lot of attention to that sort of thing. And it could be that gradually over time, legal processes against, say, Trump's company, whether at the state level in New York, or maybe eventually under the Justice Department, um, start revealing that sort of thing. I mean, I think early, years ago, people thought like, oh, well, one day the Justice Department's going to dig into what, what was left by the, the Mueller report. I don't think any of that's really going to get very far down the path that's being described here. Uh, Steve, how about this? This question is very interesting uh, from Patrick. Um, alas, we live in a world in which it is very possible to imagine that there's actually straight up international armed conflict on a, on a much larger and more overt scale in, in Ukraine with Russia invading, or maybe China invading Taiwan, maybe, or you know, who knows who else might get dragged into it in, in the South China Sea area uh, if it goes, goes off down there. So at least three global hotspots that really could take on a sort of scale of international conflict we've not seen in, in you know, many, many, many years. And the United States has obviously got interest and allies implicated in all of those scenarios. From a legal perspective, first assume Moscow or Beijing's the aggressor. Um, and the United States is willing, whoever's the government at the time, is willing to come to the direct combat aid of Ukraine, Taiwan, or let's say Vietnam, if it, something goes down on in the South China Sea. Um, is it going to be necessary for there to be a declaration of war? Does the do any existing authorities or Article II authorities allow the president solo, Harry Truman style, to bring us into World War III? I feel like we're back to like the UN Participation Act and the NATO Treaty at this point. Um, <laughs> Well, so but, but here's the beauty, right? So, you know, all, all these entities, um, friendly relations, some amount of commitment, but not NATO level commitment. That's true. Although, I mean, I think, well, and you, you don't have any security council action, right? That's right. Um, kind of those videos kind of get in the way. Um, you know, I, I don't think it would, I, I, I have a hard time believing we will ever get to a declaration of war level conflict in our lifetime. Um, because there are so many weights and pressures pushing against that, even, even if like outright hostilities break out between, you know, one of these countries and other these countries. Um, I think there will be, I think the reality of the politics, at least anytime soon, would be that there would be strong congressional support for a, an AUMF of relevant scope. Um, and I also think that the various OLC opinions that we've seen over the last, not just four years, but seven, eight, eight years, um, would also give the president a heck of a lot of Article II arguments to rely upon in the theory of collective self-defense, which, you know, as, as we've discussed in prior episodes of this podcast, I'm not really sure is a viable Article II theory. Um, so the arguments would be there. I think the statutory authority would be there. I'm not sure we'd ever get to a declaration of war. So what I think would go down, and what I think may well go down one day, 
is that there would be things the president can and probably would do well short of an overt large-scale military commitment in the opening moments of a conflict of this kind, such as uh, shows of force with the Navy, uh, such as close proximity flights, Air Force, um, that could readily turn into the use of force against those US military assets, and then you're off to the races. and yeah, that's what I think would basically happen. I think there's such a tripwire presence. Certainly, I think that in the Taiwan example and in the South China Sea variants, um, Ukraine's different, obviously. Uh, the physical proximity is, of, of U.S. forces is very different, very tricky to actually get in uh, to the picture, uh, to get into the Black Sea, for example. But it could be done. And I can, I can imagine, unless in, in Moscow or Beijing in these respective hypotheticals was being very careful not to give us the the basis for a further larger engagement. Um, it's easy to imagine something happening on the fringes, and and then we can say, well, okay, there's been attacks on our forces. Yeah, and as as, uh, as David observes in the chat, like obviously the shades of Gulf of Tonkin, um, but in this case, not not so much as the way to goad Congress into passing an AUMF. Because I think you're right, Steve. I think, look. Beijing goes after Taiwan militarily. I think that the votes will be there for an AUMF. Um, I think that it's more about triggering the Article II self-defense authorities, the core of them, as opposed to periphery claims about collective defensive allies. Um, Let's hope that all that's purely academic and never comes to pass, but it could. All Uh, right, Rich asks, how did I get on aware in the role of this crime in San Diego and would I have aced the map of Africa? Um, so to the first question, um, I won the geography B in my middle school in the seventh grade and then did not fail the interview they did with the top three people from my school to see if we were, you know, TV worthy. Um, that was, that was, that was my, my greatest accomplishment in my life. Would I have aced the map of Africa if I had not lost in the second round? Probably not. Um, I like, you know, I actually, the only thing I did sort of getting ready for that was study a map of Africa, and I still don't think I was ready. Um, but in, in an act of karmic um, satisfaction, um, I took a, a class in college called Contemporary African Politics with the fantastic um, Elka Zern. And what she actually, for one of the, for one part of our grade, gave just a, a map quiz where you got one point for each African country you could place correctly. Um, and, and, and she like, you know, it was out of, I think 35 or 40, so you could get extra credit. Um, and I, and I, I, you know, uh, 19 year old me did a lot better at that than 12 year old me would have done. That's awesome. Um, we need to start giving away t-shirts, Steve, by the True. way. All right. So, um, uh, maybe we'll have to start coming up with, with, um, best questions for t-shirts or something. Well, um, I think- yeah. Sean asked, if there was one change we can make to the 9-11 military commissions to fix their current faults, what would that be? Um, <laughs> I mean, the answer is bomb the whole thing. I mean, like, you know. The, <laughs> You're fighting the hypothetical. Uh, uh, one no, thing. No, no, Destroying it. One, like, you know. That is one, one bomb, thing. That is one thing. <laughs> you know. Zar um, uh, Bomba was one bomb. So one, I'm, t- I'm torn between two answers. One answer is uh, if they had been rigorous from the outset in only bringing charges that were well within the settled zone of what law of war violations were without doing any of the more adventurous charges, 
that helped. Um, I, I, that's, I mean, that's so, I mean, that you'd still have all the torture and all the stuff sort of stemming from the torture. I mean, honestly, I that, think that could be your answer. My answer is, I think they'd have been vastly better shape if they just stuck with straight up, you know, killing the civilians type charges. Uh, but my other thing I was drawn towards was um, holding them in the United States. Yeah. It, which may yet one day be the thing. When, in fact, I'll, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Time for a uh, random pr uh, prediction. One day there really will be an actual trial for KSM at all. Uh, it will go down somewhere in the United States, maybe South Carolina. By the way, a Anthony, Anthony suggests that Sarbamba was one bomb would be quite the episode title. I think he's right. All right, hold on. That might even be a t-shirt worthy. Oh, I was going to say, Anthony, just got a t-shirt. Anthony, email me or Steve with your mailing address and t-shirt size. You just got a t-shirt. Um, Although I reserve the right to declare that future suggestions for episode title will trump Anthony's, but he will still get it. That's true. It, well, if you can, if hey, it takes a theory to beat a theory. It takes a title to beat a title. If you can All right, beat so that's Sean's question. Um, uh, and, and I will give it, I will definitely award a t-shirt to anyone who can name Name the movie, it's an actual movie, that I'm in. This is very obscure. You, I don't know if you even know me would know the answer to this. I'll, but I'll give you a hint to make it more realistic. Um, uh, to, to, uh, it's an Anthony Michael Hall movie. <laughs> Oh, Patrick, now they're just gonna go and look at. Now they're just gonna go start throwing Anthony Michael Hall movies into the chat and just you know. This won't be an easy one. <laughs> good job, Bobby. Um, all right. What is uh, Anna we're, asks? What is the greatest, something? Um, Anna asks, "What is the greatest national security law development that's either very undercovered or has been very gradual over the past few decades?" Hmm. Wait. <laughs> Francesca just said episode 200 we gave a Brit a t-shirt <laughs> Francesca gets a t-shirt I don't know Sarbamba okay well, well maybe we'll have a vote at the end of the episode yeah um all right so so the question was what <laughs> the the question was what's the greatest national security law development that's either very undercovered or has been very gradual over the past few decades hmm I don't know so, I mean, the problem is that I'm, the, the correct answer to Anna's question is almost certainly something that neither of us are privy to, right? That something that has actually happened almost entirely out of daylight behind the scenes and perhaps under levels of multiple levels of classification. So, you know, I'm willing to speculate that whatever it is, is not something we know about. Um, I will say that, and this is, I think, a place where you and I, I think, would agree on the trend and disagree on whether it's a good thing or not. Um, I think there's been a remarkable sort of shift um, in how courts approach national security cases. Um, uh oh, Bobby's now distracted by the chat. We've lost no, Bobby. Bobby I, I don't know. I must have said this in class, but Tanya knows the movie. It's Johnny B. Good. Good job. All right. <laughs> Be sure for Tanya. Um, so, and I, I, you know, the short answer is it's something we don't know. I mean, and then I think the better answer is, you know, I think that like there's not nearly enough discussion of just how both sophisticated courts have gotten in national security cases and how skittish they still are in certain national security cases. There's, a, there's this wonderful volume um, by Tim Reagan at the Federal Judicial Center called National Security Case Management Challenges. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm not sure anyone like other than, 
I don't know, law clerks and people like Bobby and me know it exists. That's so funny. Yeah, I haven't seen, I have a copy of that that's old and it's probably like 10 times the size. Um, I, I like this idea. So one thing that you see, and this kind of goes back to the research question. Um, one thing you used to see a lot in political science writing on national security law was this attempt to sort of show through empirical methods, quantitative analysis, that there was national security deference, right? Um, and those, those studies, in my opinion, were often extremely misguided in terms of how they categorized and coded the cases and, and really weren't as, as nuanced as, as a national security law doctrinal expert would, would be able to explain. Um, but I think that actually there's, over the past 20 years, been such a rise, almost a barbell approach where you have a lot of judges who seem very committed to the to the idea and the rhetoric and the framing of national security deference. And then a lot that, that really view that as a dangerous claim. And if anything, kind of view this as, and this is sort of a Boumediene type theme, right? That this is a context where the judges need to be extra engaged and careful precisely because of the high stakes and dangers involved. So I think there's some really cool work to be done telling that story more comprehensively and actually trying to determine, is it is it the case that it's shifted over time, at least as a matter of its of its rhetoric. Um, and, I, and I'd say uh, uh, kudos to my sister, Debbie, hello, uh, who totally could have dropped the Johnny B. Good reference, but withheld. So, uh, you know, be wow, ready the for one, the, the one family member to show up to troll us is your sister. <laughs> is Karen not going to jump in? I was sure there was something dramatic was going to happen. Like, no, nah, she couldn't be bothered. The singing telegram. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, let's not go there. I really don't want to retell re re that story. That wasn't Karen. That was my I sister. I know, but she was, she was there. It was great. And one day you can tell Debbie about how my older sister for my 40th birthday proved exactly how either little she knows me or how well she knows me by doing the thing that would horrify me the most in the world. Yeah, I will say the lesson there is like a sing singing telegram in a classroom. Make sure they actually can sing. Yeah. Not a good um, all right. The most important Mets question, Daryl Strawberry or Doc Gooden? God, that, so it's always hard to go pitchers versus batters. Um, I'm going to probably go with Dr. K though on that. So by any measure, um, Gooden was better relative to his craft than Strawberry was to his. Um, and if you sort of, you know, give them both, you know, sort of don't, don't hold against either of them, all of their, you know, injured injury plague season, all the stuff yeah. like Gooden at his best was better than Strawberry at his best. Um, that was my thinking. I mean, Straw was amazing on some dimensions. But, it, I mean, but I mean, yeah. when I was a kid, I was a Strawberry person. He uh, he had a certain uh, he had more charisma, I think. But but you're right when when Doc Gooden was on, oh man, it was so great to watch that. Um, he was he was practically a Marcus Stroman. <laughs> <laughs> so every year for opening day, we went to, we went to the home opener every year, and my dad wrote the same note every year, which was please excuse Stephen from school today. He has to go see the doctor. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, what got you both interested in national security law in particular? Um, short version for me was that when I was much younger and there was still the Cold War, I wanted some way in some fashion to be involved in that. Um, very, very interested in 
spending my time and mental energy working on things that had to do with uh, resisting what I perceive to be as um, totalitarian nightmares that were unfolding in other parts of the world under the Soviet Union. Um, and that went away when I was in college um, and the new paradigm that reemerged or that emerged in the aftermath. There was that 1990s window of rogue states, WMD and terrorism. And I got really, really, really invested in the topic of terrorism uh, around in that sort of window with McVeigh, 93 World Trade Center bombing and uh, Achille Laro, all those sorts of things. Um, they, they felt they weren't personal to me through any experience, but they felt very personal in that. I mean, I still to this day, it makes my blood boil to think about people using violence to advance against random others to advance their agendas. And, and so uh, I went to law school and was looking for ways to put those things together. And that's why I was out there trying to become a law professor in 99 and 2000 a law professor who would work on national security law and counterterrorism. And there wasn't much market uh, pre 9-11. And I was out there on the market in 2001 when 9-11 happened. And then there was, there was, and so I got hired at Wake Forest and the, the rest is what I've been doing ever since. Steve, what about you? I just wanted to follow you. Yeah. Um, just saying. Um, so, um, ooh, Seth is right. That's not a bad show title. Bobby was here first. Um, <laughs> we got some good contenders. That's just an um, age thing. I just, I just was a little bit older in the process. So, I, I mean, I think I've told the story, it but like a the, little bit, a little the, bit the older. Real, the, um, yes, nine Yes, not only was I in law school, I was a one L. Um, I was in Guido Calabresi's torts class when the planes hit the hit the North and South Tower. Um, so I went to law, I've told the story before, and I don't want to belabor it. I, I went to law school because um, I was super into um, like international criminal justice. I had spent all of college looking at like war crimes trials, um, truth and reconciliation commissions, sort of the politics of memory, law and historical trauma. And so I thought that I was really interested in, you know, international criminal justice, international criminal court, all that good stuff. Um, and then 9-11 happened. And, you know, I don't think it's in any way surprising that like my interest in you know, how societies react to violent crises all of a sudden turned inward to look at our own. Um, but um, to sort of, to, 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 to cut two questions with, with, one, with one answer. So there's a question from uh, Louis Brokatsky. I hope I'm pronouncing that almost accurately. Um, so his second question is about the Hague Invasion Act and whether it really is still a thing where, you know, the president could theoretically order the military to actually rescue US personnel from ICC custody. The answer is yes. It is still on the books. Um, I, that's quite a thing. But his first question, Bobby, Kirk or Picard? Like, there's a part of me that wants to say Kirk because I feel like that's cooler. But deep down, I definitely identify more with Picard. All right. I'd be much more likely to, in the Kobayashi Maru, I would probably not be the one to... to cheat the system and well, we, don't know, well, we don't know how picard i mean picard would have like popped up in a bottle of wine um all right here's my answer are you ready i did not look at the chat i didn't want any spoilers um the answer to kirk or picard is cisco <laughs> nathan nathan had that in the chat too oh darn it. <laughs> well that's my answer um, what no, no janeway um, fans here come on y'all cisco hmm. just saying um, okay, 
Uh, let's see what else we have. Uh, do we have a favorite or favorite old chestnuts contributing members? Um, you know, I really, I loved the Dovey Mattis storyline. Um, it was, it had, it had a little tinge of mystery, like a little difficult. Yeah, just enough public awareness to be able to track the major outlines of the story, but there was stuff going on behind the scenes that, that kind of kept us guessing a lot, almost, almost like a, a narrative device. Um, it had the, the, just the, the serendipity element that like the government wasn't trying to hold a U.S. citizen in military detention, but also couldn't really stop doing it very easily. So that, that one was, that was fascinating. And that was with us, what, like a year and a half? Um, that was a particularly good one. Yeah, Hunter's right. It's the only right answer, W. Mattis. That's it's not the only right answer. Come You're on. gonna say military commissions? Nashiri. Nashiri. The the, the twenty-six layer dip. Like that's you know, true, that's true. We haven't mentioned the dip. I do legends, love the dip. Legends have been told about the dip. One of y'all had the seven layer dip in there earlier. I know. Oh, there. It went nine layers at one point. I mean, come on. I mean, as Hunter, as Hunter says, right? Like, you know, Nashiri had a little bit of everything. It had, you know, General Baker being like detained, like confined to his, you know, his whatever, his hut for a week. I mean, come on, Nishiri had everything. It's my, the, my real resistance to it is just that I couldn't state the layers in that dip if my life depended on it. Um, and there's just sort of the, the lack of, uh, the lack of resolution makes it hard too. That's another quality I mean, that Dovey Mads had. It got, it got pretty resolved. I mean, like Judge Tatel and the DC Circuit threw all that shit out. Well, I'm sure it'll all be back at some point. Well, the re Steve, they're going to reheat the dip. All right. Um, Eric asks, does Bobby keep the blazer with pocket square that he modeled in the reunion video in his closet for just such special occasions? And then Eric takes a totally gratuitous shot at me. We know Steve mostly wears athletic shorts. Okay. I'll just say are, you, are you or are you not currently wearing athletic shorts? Listen, if I was going to be in a video, I would probably put real pants on. Yeah, fair enough. I, I teach in real pants. Yeah, but fair, for I, the record, I, I am not going to move record. the camera because I don't want I don't want any awkwardness. But I'm just going to say that I'm currently wearing Met shorts. Ah, I knew it. I knew it. Um, I uh, often keep that blazer and and that pocket square. By the way, was actually my mask. I've uh, discovered that it works really well as a pocket square when you're not using it. Um, so I recommend that to you. Um, it's usually in here. I've got the, this is like my dress shirt from most of the time these days I'm wearing my exercise clothes all day. I wake up as Steve knows, I, I walk, I go get coffee. I often see Steve and his daughters. Um, I walk back and I do as much work as I can while walking around talking to people on the phone and doing things by email. And then I realize inevitably like way too far from my house that I have a Zoom coming up to meet with somebody and I race back and I throw this on and as quickly as I can while the Zoom is loading, I'm like trying to get just the first button down and then I just lower myself. <laughs> I'm just like getting it done fully dressed. Yeah, I think Seth, Seth's got a point. We seem to have gone off the uh, right. deep end um let's see uh, da, da, da. uh I, i'll take I'll, I'll do jordan's question offline because that's i don't think anyone really wants wants to know what i really think about the chances that i could sue the beckett fund for you know being mean <laughs> to me um especially since they won of course they <laughs> um all right uh, a general scotus question um from gray brooks um hello gray um so one resource i still haven't found that i think there's a clear need for 
Um, a deep dive into the bedrock, ultimate basis of power and authority for the Sunday Northern practices. What if every justice got really real politics? What would happen if the chief or a majority tried to exercise real raw power without regard to tradition or long-term effects? Um, other than impeachment, what are the actual constraints on the justice's individual or the court's fundamental power? Um, okay. Um, so first, um, there's a whole lot of literature about this, um, right? Um, but the broader thing I would say is, you know, I think individual instances of this probably don't have remedies, Bobby, but like structural instances of this, I think would really do serious damage to the court's legitimacy. Um, and, you know, there's a case book by Barry Friedman and a whole bunch of other really fantastic people called, I think, judicial decision-making or something like that, that gets at this from a legal perspective. There are political science works about this, but, you know, I think the sort of the court's legitimacy is, is, I think, a lot more fragile than we often assume it to be. And I think this is a good sort of example of, of where that legitimacy could really be called in the question. And just, you know, it dovetails with the, um, it dovetails with my frustration about that Friday night ruling that we talked about in last week's episode um, about how the court is literally exceeding the limits on its own power now, right, to do things on the shadow docket. And so I think, you know, the, the long-term implications are, are, are all about legitimacy to me. So you and I both teach constitutional law to one else and- And you do it well. Uh, no, oh, the evaluation suggests you might do it better, um, <laughs> but uh, they're not I too bad in either case. Uh, some people on this call have had to experience it firsthand. They can, they can vote for themselves. Um, one of the themes I'm sure that you highlight and that I certainly try to is this constant question of how an institution that has the features that the Supreme Court does can curate its power over time so that it's actually able to, to make things stick sometimes in difficult circumstances. Um, there's a whole vast doctrinal and theoretical literature about this. Steve, do you think that the prospect of serious institutional change to the court, which is portended at least, or maybe not portended by the commission, maybe it, maybe it portends there won't be change, but there's at least now a real institutionalized effort to have that formal discussion. If there's any kind of truly meaningful change, significant expansion, ideas about you know, terms of service, that sort of thing, does, is this going to weaken the institutional credibility of the court by in some way or fashion drawing attention to the power that it exercises and the, the structures that sustain that power and how they can be changed, which is the whole point of that reform effort. I mean, I think, I think a lot depends on what happens in the next couple of years, right? Like I think, you know, is the commission gonna come up with anything serious? Is the court gonna do anything to provoke them? You know, is a ruling like the one we got, you know, on, on April 9th, the exception or is it increasingly gonna become the rule, um, right? I mean, like that's, you know, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions about this. Um, right, is the chief going to be increasingly marginalized by the other five conservatives as he was in the Tandon ruling on April 9th? I mean, I think, you know, that's going to have a lot to say about how much damage is done to the court's legitimacy, how much that actually creates momentum for real reforms, how much Congress actually pursues meaningful reforms as opposed to just politically visible ones. You know, all of that, I think, is, 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 in, the, is in, the, it's in the stew. It's in the soup. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what comes of this. Um, I see, I see in the chat, uh, Dylan's thinking about maybe come to Texas law, do it, join us, Dylan. Hey, listen, if you come, uh -huh. if you come this fall, you've got a, what is it? A, um, shoot, uh, 
shoot a, fu- a, one, a four a one third chance of having one of us for con law something like that um right because you have one section and i've got a small group so that's oh you have a small group okay yeah so one um, fourth wait one fourth plus one third is wait one fourth there's six six total teachers yeah. but it's not evenly distributed is the catch oh yeah. well see i didn't know that yeah well, no, no, because like I, I'll oh, have. Oh no, no, right, no, no, right, right. Seventy-five. No, no, what I'm saying is, there are four sections, right? And so you've got one section, so that's one quarter, and I've got so it's a quarter plus a sixth, so it's to ten twenty-fourths, so that's it's five twelfths. So your chance of having one of us for common is five out of twelve. Well, now you've <laughs> definitely not going there now. Yeah. Oh man, um, let's see what else have we got. Oh, sorry. Um, this is for you. Why do you think SolarWinds got so much more mainstream press than the Microsoft Exchange breach, which in Dylan's opinion is a much bigger deal in terms of potential damage? Yeah, you're, you're right about that um, in terms of the, dis- like if you're going to be more concerned about one or the other, I mean, you could, you could argue it's a tie, um, but either way, there's a huge gulf in the, the level of attention. So part of it's exhaustion. Part of it is that SolarWinds caught a sort of holiday window of attention uh, and it had part of it's as simple as the name, like the Microsoft exchange story sounds like something that like, everybody's got Microsoft, everybody's got Microsoft exchange. What is this solar winds? Tell me more about that. That sounds very dramatic. The wind from the sun, eh? It just has a lot of rhetorical elements that make it easy for people to catch on. I think everyone, because our phones, even people have no idea what's going on with software and, and patching and so forth. At this point in our in our progress with phones, can relate to the uh, the trusted update mechanism because we all have to deal with it. Uh, even people who otherwise do nothing. Um, yeah, as Amanda said, step one: don't have a sizzling name for your company if you don't want to be you know prone to these sorts of things. So yeah, it comes first. It's got it's just got a name that kind of sounds interesting. Um, you guys know it's an Austin-based company. Um, it's, it's not far from here. And the story kind of unfolds in an interesting way. It's hard to make the on-prem exchange O-days and subsequent web shelling sound that interesting to non-aficionados of the trade. But SolarWinds, you can kind of tell a, a simple story of, look, everybody's got this thing called Orion and it has pervasive view within your system and solar winds makes Orion. It starts to sound like a Rick Riordan book after a certain point. So we'll see. Um, it's, it's be, that story, notwithstanding the executive order all along should have been a call to arms to fund and resource CISA dramatically more on a sustained basis and overcoming all objections within the federal civilian executive branch to letting CISA run the show from an information security perspective. It, it's had some of that effect, not nearly as much as it should. And uh, it's one reason I don't love the highlighting of solar winds as opposed to not Petya and assassinations as a basis for the sanctions is that it makes it seem like, ah, that's what we needed to do. We needed to sanction the Russians some more. That'll fix our cybersecurity problems, which it won't. All right, I think we should do one or two more and then head to frivolity. Yeah. Um, so what, what should we, uh, what you, want, you want to pick out a special one or should we do the next two? Well, the- I'll put one to you guys that you can hit me up offline, but I'm really interested in finding someone who's uh, knowledgeable about uh, guitars, who can give me some advice on floating tremolo bridges versus hardtail uh, this is and, and whether I can ever overcome the, the, uh, 
the tuning issue that happens when you do unison bends on a floating tremolo guitar. I need to talk to somebody who knows what's up. But other topics? Um, so I was actually, this will be a good segue to the frivolity. So there's a question from um, Nick uh, Petri. Um, we already talked about our favorite sustaining member segments, but what about our least favorite sustaining members? And this, I think, is a good segue to frivolity and things we did not expect when we started this podcast. Yeah, okay. So that is a perfect segue to saying that I hate it that we had to spend four years talking about basic elements of the rule of law, fundamental American values, democracy, decency in the office of the presidency, that sort of thing. I hated that. I hated every second of it, as I'm sure many of you could tell, because sometimes I sort of lost my cool about that and, and acted up a bit about it. Um, yeah. And as Janine says, also, like you and I were forced to agree on everything. And I think the show's most it's it's not always. I was about to say that that's not exactly for the people who are not watching the slide. That's not exactly how Janine put it. <laughs> I'm looking for it now. Oh, I did hate agreeing with Steve so much. That is the precise way. I think the show's most instructive when you and I uh, get a bone we can gnaw on where we don't agree, but we can illustratively map out both doctrinally and, and often with deeper structure uh, about our own premises and priors. Like here's why we're coming at it differently. And, and then it's kind of fun sometimes to see that reflected in comments on Twitter and elsewhere with y'all. Uh, commenting saying like, you know, I'm with Steve here, the, you know, Bobby trusts the government too much or, you know, has too many friends who like do this stuff and he thinks they're all trustworthy, that sort of thing, or vice versa. And, and when we are modeling that, which we don't get to do as often as we thought we were going to, but when we're modeling that, I think that's when we're serving our highest pedagogical function. And it's not something we get to do when we teach solo in, in the classroom, because it's, I mean, you can say like, well, here's the counter argument, but you're, it doesn't bring it alive in the same way as when there's real adversariality. I agree with that. So I'm, I'm going to be a little more specific, which is I hated how often we had to talk about the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. <laughs> That's true. I, just, I really did. I just, I hated it. I mean, like, yes, I knew about it and I could talk about it with some modicum of, of authority, but, but. Boy, I bet I can persuade stuff. you to change your vote. I bet you hated it even more. You kept having to talk about what treason is and isn't. Yeah. Okay. That too. <laughs> See, we're again, agreeing too often. Well, one thing we already knew before the show started, and we knew this from years of being at conferences and panels and such together, um, we knew that broadly speaking, uh, on, on what used to be the left and the right, I don't know what it is now, but um, the community of people who work on these issues, we actually mostly all agree on most stuff most of the time. In fact, that's one of the lessons of law school that's hardest to discern for those who are either in law school right now or thinking about going to law school, because the law school casebook method, it's all about here are the fiercest, most closely, hopefully the most closely divided opinions. And you feel like everything's balanced on the razor's edge and it all it's all discretionary, therefore. And it, it just feels like people d disagree and it's all up for grabs. But the reality of, of everyday life is that most participants in the system agree about most of the everyday stuff most of the time. That doesn't mean that the other stuff isn't super important and isn't worthy of attention, um, but it can give you the wrong feel for things. So what else did you not expect when we started? Um, I definitely didn't expect the scale of the audience. Yeah. Um, there are a lot so, more of you than I thought there would be. Yeah, it's weird. And maybe that's a whole lot of like sort of 
uh, autopilot downloads. I mean, we've all got some podcasts that download every week that we're like, no, nah, I'm not listening to that. Maybe we have a lot of that. Um, but I mean, we're these days, you know, we're steadily in the 13,000, 14,000 a week range. Every now and then it'll spike up for some weird reason and sometimes it dives, but that's a lot of people. Um, we probably should have monetized this. <laughs> oh, well. Whoops. I, just, I said this before. I can't stand all my podcasts that I listen to. We have to like try to fast forward through the Harry's razors and, you know, other things. Um, what, you? what surprises you the most? Um, I'll just say I did not think it would last this long. Um, right. Like, like I thought it would be a fun, like we do a year or two, we'd have a whole bunch of deep dives. We'd build like a catalog of, you know, sort of like, Hey, here's an, you know, if you thought us versus Reynolds was a crazy case, wait till we do a deep dive into ex parte Kieran. Um, right. I mean, like, I thought, (laughs) I thought that's what, like, I thought that's what we were going to do. Like a, a podcast where we could like take the episodes and assign them to students in future classes. And it just, I was just not ready for how much a current events show this became and, yeah. you know, sort of, and how many current events there were to talk about. Yeah, I told you're right about that. Actually, the biggest surprise is I thought we'd actually be doing a little bit of a, a much more sort of like teaching national security yeah. law program, which we did a decent amount of in the first hundred episodes. There were the deep dives. Those were a blast. Those required preparation. Yeah. Um, I think uh, just the sheer press of events I think I also didn't appreciate just how uh, accustomed to it I would get. I mean, I really look forward to this time every week. It's been Aww. it's been really great for us uh, since we're you know out of the building. When we're in the building, we see each other all the time, anyways. I mean, um, our offices are like two doors down from each other. When yeah, we're allowed to although be we're in the neighborhood together, and I see all the time out and about. But this is this is great. It I didn't appreciate how much better it would make me at. A, keeping up with my field, our field, and B, just keep me on my toes. I mean, having to having to discuss this with you every week and knowing that we often come from different perspectives on this, it is like having a sparring partner who's like 10 years ahead of you in experience in the ring and keeps you really, really, really on your toes. So that's been great for me. Right back at you. I, I feel, I, so I, I, always, I often think about it as like, if I can convince Bobby, then I must be right. That's usually my, that's usually my mantra. Same here. Same. Um, all right. Um, we, we can't let this go though, without talking about like how good a start the Mets are off to. So let's, let's do yes. it. Um, okay. So who do, who do you give the most credit to single player? Who, who's the, the MVP? All right. Not I'm like, go terms, like who's the most valuable long-term, but just for this yeah. one. I, I think, so I think the, I think the team is playing with a different attitude. Um, and I think it's really, really encapsulated in how the game ended yesterday with McCann throwing out uh, Trevor Story trying to steal second and Lindor like swiping the tag down. Like, so I'm going to say something really, really weird. I actually think the most important player on this team right now is James McCann. Interesting. Interesting. Right? He's, handling, he's handling what's been a fantastic uh, pitching staff, right? Um, he's, you know, he's... He's finally like an excellent defensive catcher, something the Mets have not had since Jerry Grody, um, <laughs> right? I mean, with all love to Gary Carter, like Gary Carter was an offensive catcher and a decent yeah. defensive catcher. Um, so, you know, he's not the best player by any metric, but I think he's the glue. You know, I think 
I think that's actually pretty wise. I can't disagree with it. I think that in a way it's not anything he's done in the field, but Lindor for all his early season sort of slow start, just the fact of him. And, and this is where actually the MVP is probably the new ownership. Yeah. Um, they, yeah. they successfully, it's, it's a lot like what's happening here with Texas UT basketball with Chris Beard. It's a very similar deal. Whoa, 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 whoa. At least we find something to disagree about perhaps, but I know I'm right on this one. So I'm happy to discuss it. Um, the amount of, <laughs> uh, the amount of belief on the field or in the, uh, in the, in Texas basketball's case, in the recruitment process, the amount of belief that's been created on the field for the Mets because of the new spirit of, of people coming in and being like, all right, new day, we're here to win it. We are, it, you know, it created a faith in what they were, they were trying to do. And so some of that spirit we're seeing with the Mets, I think is a reflection that like, yeah, yeah this organization's serious. I think we're going to see, and we're already seeing that the same thing's kind of happening with, with Chris Beard and the UT basketball program, by the way, just like we saw it already, I think early signs that's probably going to be that way with, with Sark, with uh, Sarkeesian, the new <laughs> Coach. you're such a homer i you watch uh, texas basketball and football are on the way up because they um, <laughs> they sure couldn't be doing worse than they well they could do a little bit worse would that be yeah tough? i was gonna say uh, right. uh, in the field brandon nimmo deserves some some real love um he continues to be really really hot he as you said to me the other day he's uh he's always been pretty good but this is more than i expected yeah, but I mean, Nimmo's not going to lead the league at OPS. I mean, he might be, listen, top five in on-base percentage, I think, because it's the same possibility. Like, his, he'll end up hitting, like, 320 and with, like, a four-something OBP because he walks all the time. But, you know, I mean, what's crazy is the Mets are seven and four, and neither Lindor nor Alonzo nor Conforto are hitting. Right, and, and so, that's, what, like, that's what bodes so well. If the pitching yes. can hold up, yes. um, I think we'll be in great shape. Yes. Um, all right, sorry, everybody. We just, we had to. Um Predictions for episode 400, and then we're out of here. 400. Well, we probably have to give away another couple of T-shirts. Yeah. Um, okay, so ballpark, what do you think? That's about four more years? years from now. Three, four years. So April April of 2025, summer of 2025. Um, <laughs> we'll be covering the start of the KSM trial. <laughs> Oh man. Um, the more interesting question is, are, are we on Twitch by then? So that this is like, you know, watching our nonsense is a regular deal. Or what, what kind of plat- Will podcasting still be a thing three or four years from now? I kind of think so. Cause I think there's an irreducible amount of interest in things you can do while you're exercising or commuting where you're moving about. Um, Once we actually start commuting again. Yeah. Well, and we're doing okay. Even without that. Yeah. Um, so I think podcasting or some, some variant of it is here to stay. So the format will be stable in a way that, you know, <laughs> blogging, blogging, maybe, maybe not, you know, email listservs are dead. I, um, episode, episode 400 of the National Kill podcast. We're down to four detainees now. The rest have died out. It uh, will be, uh, I think the AUMF will still be on the books. I, I'm not taking, I'm not, I'm not fighting you on that one. Yeah. Um, all right, I'm going to let I'm saying that um, um, <laughs> Solicitor General Vladek is asked by Justice Chesney, was Alan Nashiri right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's good. That's got a couple of levels working there. I like that. Yeah. 
Um, I, I, I'm just trying to figure out what president is going to what what president is going to put Bobby on the Supreme Court and well, I would me never, as the SG between they'd never, and, I'd never be a federal judge. That that doesn't suit me. You'd be a good federal judge. I would not. Uh, I don't think I'd have the interest because I'm I'm too only interested in in this stuff. Um, hey, Philip, if you want to ask a, a Marbury question, go for it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I you know it's I I, I just I never would have thought four <laughs> years ago, like. I was worried about Trump and I was worried about everything that would happen and things were so much worse than I thought they would be. So, yeah. Um, Steve would be appointed to calf over my dead body. <laughs> um, no, thank you very much. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, any other sort of parting words, parting shots? Um, there was someone in the chat mentioned um, Bobby should be appointed to reform FISA. Well, that I can get behind. Um, so someone in the chat um, um, wanted us to talk about the new cert petition filed by the ACLU um, seeking review of the sort of the rejection of a qualified public access to FISA court. Um, Bobby, I think we'll put that on the list for next week. Yeah, um, that's a good I idea. That's, yep. I actually think that's worth talking about a little bit. Um, yeah. so. I don't think there's, I don't think it's likely to get granted, but it's definitely worth talking about. Well, uh, so so it, there's an interesting, I, I, I think that, I mean, no superstitions ever like, I mean, you know, in a case like this, I think that's right. I, there are reasons why of the three cases that have gotten to the Supreme Court from the FISA court, I think this one might be the most interesting, um, but we'll see. Um, I like the inquirate talk in the chat thread. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Irish Times. That's that's really spinning things backwards. The 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 the, the word incorate from the Irish Times from my testimony in the in the Schrems two. Um, Twenty four members Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, All right. Um, I think that's probably a good a good place to leave it. Do we have an episode title? Do you have a favorite? Um, our, we had Zarbamba was one bomb. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, um, do you have anything else? Um, do I have anything else? Czar Bomba was one bomb. Uh, they're reheating the dip. <laughs> That'd be pretty good. Although they're not, I might mislead people into thinking something's cooking there. Um, what was the one about? Um, um, what was the one about me and you? I wanted to. I just, I, I just followed you. Oh, yeah. um, oh no! If, if you if if you agree with me, I know I'm right. I think Sarbamba was one bomb might be the, the yeah best. that's interesting. Um, Ooh, right. Kyle, episode two hundred five percent of the way to episode four thousand. Oh, I like that t-shirt. Yeah, Kyle gets a t-shirt because Kyle, you got to email us your mailing address. That's a good. I think one. Kyle, that's the winner. To episode yeah. four thousand. No, R.I.P. Walter Mondale is not was not what we're doing. <laughs> this is so much fun. It's fun having y'all here. I really do wish we had uh, done it or had a way to do it in, in a full-on Zoom room so we could actually see you guys. That'd be even more fun. Um, but we know you're there, and the chat's been a load of fun to watch. And so thanks for spending the, the, the evening with us. And uh, yes, we would totally cold call you if we could see you. <laughs> Next time, there will be reading. Uh, all right, he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, thank you guys so much for making it through not just the first 200 episodes, but like this really long one um and we'll be back next week without a live audience for more of our usual hijinks so until then stay safe out there adios <laughs>